Welcome to Farmer Talk Radio. I'm Danny McCarthy. Today, I'm speaking with Jonathan Andrus, Chief Strategy Officer of Clinical Inc. about flexible data collection, mobile strategies that worked for decentralized clinical trials, and what the future looks like as we optimize and use DCTs. Welcome, Jonathan. Thanks, Danny. Can you tell us about Clinical Inc. and the work that it's leading in DCTs? So Clinical Inc. has been involved in flexible clinical trial data collection for the better part of a decade now. Prior even to the pandemic that we find ourselves in now today, we've always been about really reaching patients where they are and doing all that we can to kind of keep them where they are too, as well as providing tools and solutions for sites, uh, for CROs, for sponsor organizations to be able to collect data in a way that enables uh, not only direct collection of data from patients, but also enables remote source data review, uh, source data monitoring, other kinds of activities that, again, even prior to what we find ourselves living in today, uh, really helped drive clinical research forward in a way that was untouched in, in the way the data were collected. Back in 2013 and 2014, we were involved in some early Ebola outbreak research where for example, even before we knew what the word or had uttered the word decentralized clinical trials before, we had clinicians going out into the field using our tools, using our solution to collect data directly from patients in hot zones, be able to collect data directly from them, whereas you know, in other situations, they would have had to bring in other research personnel and other staff into these environments that would have put them at risk. And so by doing uh, a solution like we were able to offer, uh, we were able to get out into the field early on, collect these data in a way that then brought the data back for the sponsor and for the CRO to understand what was going on with that study and drive the Ebola research uh, forward in a way that would have just been uh, unable to be done using some of the other tools that were available at that time. As someone who has been in this space well before the pandemic, can you speak to what you witnessed as the industry rapidly and widely adopted decentralized approaches to running clinical trials? I think what we, well, uh, first I'll start with what some of our sponsors learned that had been working with us and partnering with us in the days when COVID first started to come around, you know, to, to come about. A number of our sponsor organizations came to us and said, you know what, if we hadn't embrace some of the things we were doing with you, we wouldn't have been able to keep our research going on like it, like it was. We even had a CRO come to us and say that you, they were one of the few customers that they had where they were actually able to continue on with monitoring and other activities because this particular sponsor company had embraced uh, direct capture, electronic source data collection uh, before. What we saw was other customers were even taking assessments that were being done on site and we were moving them to at-home devices, at home, our, our at-home solution to allow for patients to be able to collect data uh, from the comfort of their own home. We were outfitting some of our tablets and devices with uh, telehealth, telemedicine solutions. Uh, we were even providing gently used tablet devices to patients that didn't have the means to connect uh, and get online because they didn't have a computer at home or uh, some other type of device to enable the research to continue, to enable them to be able to connect uh, with clinicians in order to carry the research forward. So we were able to pivot a number of our studies uh, very rapidly from assessments that were being done on site to assessments that were then able to be done from home. So that's what we saw, especially in the early days when it was, a, to say the least, a little bit chaotic about 
about what to do and how to go about carrying uh, carrying forth the mission of driving forward, uh, you know, ther therapeutic research. What are your thoughts on how to maintain the momentum? And what would your recommendations be for building processes that really not only utilize flexible data collection, but really optimize it? No, great question. And I think one of the things, or one of the many things uh, that I see going on right now, and I think will be absolutely crucial and fundamental to, you know, no pun intended, but hashtag no, no going back, um, which has been popularized on LinkedIn and other social media about not going back to the ways in which we used to carry out clinical research. It's all about putting the patient first. And I think in putting the patient first, it addresses so many of the things that we've talked about, right? We've given a lot of lip service to over the years, like patient diversity and inclusion and, and a variety of things. And I think the more that we embrace technology, the more that we embrace putting the patient first in everything that we do, a lot of that can be enabled through solutions like what we offer. I mean, there's others that offer it too, but I think that's always been paramount for us is that we want to you know, really help our sponsor organizations obviously drive their research forward, but also, you know, engage with patients where they are, keep them where they are, allow them to be involved uh, in, in, in these research activities in a way that further diversifies the patient population, whether it's old, young, you know, different locations, different, uh, different atmospheres uh, where they find themselves in, where maybe they're not able to you know, call off from work or be able to travel two hours to get to the site, but be, you know, being able to provide them with the abilities to do that. And part of that is obviously clearing regulatory barriers or hurdles. And what I see happening now in all of my years in industry that I've never seen before are regulatory agencies and ministries of health coming together in a global fashion. I just had an opportunity last week to lead the regulatory town hall uh, at, a, at a major conference that occurred. And in that town hall, I had members and representatives from the EMA and the MHRA, the Medicines Health Agency from, from the UK, as well as the US FDA. And what I heard from there is that, you know, they're producing now decentralized clinical trial guidance documents. They're producing digital health guidance documents that are coming out very soon. Um, I heard quotes from the EMA that basically said that you know, there's no going back. They want to continue forward the pathway of, of doing more and more decentralized hybrid kinds of clinical trials. The other thing that's also going on, which I think is vitally important, is there's uh, industry groups uh, cropping up now, like the Decentralized Trials Research Alliance, of which Clinical Inc. is very much involved in. What we're aimed at doing is identifying what is the decentralized cli uh, clinical trials life cycle, and then what are all the different regulations and guidance that companies need to know about and be aware of in order to drive that, that research forward, as well as engaging with the regulatory agencies to have them play a crucial part in breaking down barriers, perceived barriers in a lot of cases around how to best carry out this type of, 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 of research going forward. And there's a, a number of other industry initiatives going on as well that I think are aimed at collecting, for example, digital endpoints. Uh, Clinical Inc. is also working with DIME, which is the Digital Medicines Society, uh, around ways that we can collect data in a more standard and efficient and effective way from patients, digital biomarkers, and digital endpoint data direct from patients that help, uh, again, in and around uh, the ways in which we collect data for decentralized trials. 
what other support in addition to regulatory guidances is needed to really push this forward into the next phase? I mean, I think beyond regulatory guidance and directives and other kinds of things that are produced by, by relevant agencies, I think best practice documents, getting industry coalitions and groups together to hear best, best you know, to hear of best practices, to hear of case studies where this has been done. Um, I think that is absolutely critical for people to hear of studies that have been done in such a way as that they were submitted and they were they were found to be acceptable for submission, right? I think those are the kinds of things that you know companies are looking for um, with respect to this. I mean, for example, the the whole concept of bring your own device uh, has has scared some companies. They don't they don't want to do it. They'd rather do provisioned. Uh, provision devices for those kinds of things, making patients carry around another phone or a device that maybe isn't their own. But today, what's interesting is that, for example, the COVID studies that were done for one of the major <laughs> COVID vaccine providers was done in a BYOD setting. And all of the safety data was collected on a bring your own device approach for the collection of those safety data and used as part of the submission. So those are the kinds of things that I think Danny, to your to your question, will help drive things forward because it breaks down these perceived fears or these perceptions around, well, I can't do this because it's not accepted by the agency or it's not, you know, my submission is going to be rejected. These are things that are fundamentally kind of pointing out that no, it is in fact okay, that it is in fact acceptable for use. I think those are the kinds of things that are going to drive forward this type of clinical trial design and clinical trial approach. On the subject of BYOD, bring your own device, do you see that taking up a large portion of studies or do you think we'll still follow the provision device pathway? And what what are the pros and cons of each? Yeah, I I think, yes, uh, we will continue to see a large increase in folks using their own device. I think, you know, go back five, seven, 10 years ago, right, where Maybe cell phone and mobile device proliferation wasn't anywhere near the point where it is today, depending on patient demographics, age specifically, perhaps socioeconomic status as well that could have impacted, uh, you know, the abilities for folks to have, you know, phones that would be acceptable for use in collecting these kinds of, uh, of, of data. So I think always at the end of the day, there will be some element of a provision model where you know maybe the majority of data that's collected is done via patient's own device, but also having the option of providing provision. I do think, you know, from a pro standpoint, obviously bring your own device increases compliance. There's plenty of studies and research to prove that, you know, if you're using your own device, you're getting reminders popping up on the phone that you use day in and day out, you're much more likely to engage and interact with the tasks and the activities that you need to do with respect to a given clinical study, as opposed to a provision device, which, you know, you head out to get a coffee or you head out to go grab something to eat and you leave that device at home, right? You're most likely not going to turn around and go back and get a provision device, but you're most likely not going to leave your house, your apartment, wherever, without having the phone that you have day in and day out with you. So if, obviously from a compliance perspective, that's going to be important. I think it depends on what's being collected um, from the patient. I think we're going to see a lot more 
uh, data collected direct from the patient, even around cognitive, you know, self-reported cognitive assessments or other activities that might require a level of, of device uh, that may, they may require it to be provisioned, right? So it depends on what you're collecting, the data that you're collecting, that I think is going to drive the ultimate determination as to whether provisioned is the right way to go or or is the patient using their own device acceptable for use within, within the study? Um, but I do think we're going to see and continue to see an increase in the use of BYOD. And in fact, not, not to go back to the regulators again, but I can't help myself because in June of this year, the EMA published um, a draft guidance document. And in that draft guidance document, it's, it specifically states that uh, it's completely acceptable for patients to use their own phones and devices to collect uh, patient reported outcomes data. So there again, uh, it's helping to break down those barriers um, from, a, from a use and implementation standpoint. If you're talking with clients, what are the kinds of conversations you're having to make sure that, the, that they're utilizing digital and devices in the best way? When we first sit down or meet with a potential customer, uh, we always look for, you know, fit for use and to look for the most appropriate method. We uh, employ uh, within our organization outcome scientists and outcome solution specialists who take a look at the protocol, identify the best approach for that, give recommendations around um, what percent of BYOD based on geographic expanse of their study and how they plan on carrying it out the different types of assessments they plan on doing and whether or not the respective license holders that own the rights to those assessments do or don't allow uh, for certain types of devices or, or bring your own device approach is appropriate for that. So we, we really come alongside of the customer and really um, provide them with you know, the expertise that they need in order to make informed decisions around how to, how to move that study forward. What would you like to see going forward utilizing mobile technology? What would be your guidances to make sure that the way that we're building the road going forward is the best way? So what, what we've been seeing lately and what we've been working with customers is developing what we call a playbook, a playbook for decentralized clinical trials and a playbook for BYOD. And this playbook is really comprised of some of the core processes and core procedures that are necessary in order to help ensure that we have a consistent approach. So if we do study number one with XYZ sponsor company, you know, we clearly lay those things out in the playbook and we use that playbook then for each of the subsequent studies that we do. So each team, as it comes on and comes off of a given project, that we're working off of that same best practices playbook, if you will. And in there, it contains all the steps and the measures and kind of the gotchas, right? So that we don't repeat those again. And because things are somewhat fluid right now, for lack of a better word, um, we really have found it to be beneficial to develop these playbooks with you know, our, 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 our customers, right? As, as we've been navigating through um, their studies and as they're kind of learning as they're going and, and what makes sense for their patient populations and how best to, you know, run forward with executing on their protocol designs. Um, so we really have found that these playbooks have become especially uh, valuable, especially when it comes to um, repeatability 
and having best practices put into place. In developing these playbooks, I love I love the gotcha, the you know that that oh this didn't work out so well. So how are you assessing what really worked, or moments where you think that could have been utilized better, that could have been designed better? So, in addition to building the playbooks, especially with customers where uh, we have a, a program of studies or a number of studies that we're doing that that are embracing and using the full complement of of functionality that we offer as an organization is to really lay out uh, a well-defined um, partnership and governance structure. And within there, about identifying, um, you know, how can we optimize the process? How can we collaborate? How can we establish some of those functional standards as well as bring on uh, operational or trained kind of in that playbook that I mentioned earlier before. And you know, our ultimate strategic goals with each of those encounters that we have are to streamline the process by which we go through in building and configuring and testing and deploying and engaging with the customer from a user acceptance testing standpoint. How can that then translate into accelerating timelines? Because we're all about creating and developing libraries, libraries for reuse, so that if we if if we do something and we do something well, we want to put that into for lack of a better word, write a library for re, from a repeatability standpoint. We can go to that library, pull it out of there, reuse it for another study. We may have to tweak it a little bit, but, but it does allow for both the acceleration of timelines, you know, better quality deployments, uh, and just you know, overall improves the, the clinical team's experience. And, and all of these things are leading to stronger and stronger partnerships between um, our customers as the sponsor and us as, 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 as a partner, as a vendor for them uh, executing on, on that. So again, it's all about, you know, really collaborating, establishing those functional standards, optimizing the process, and then, you know, leading and yielding to uh, library development and an overall improved clinical experience. What does the next generation of DCTs look like to you? So from a clinical link perspective, obviously there have been, you know, the collection of typical point in time data collection elements, right? I come in, I do an assessment either as a clinician administered. So Dr. Jonathan with patient Danny, and I go through and I do an assessment with you uh, as opposed to more active tests or passive monitoring activities. Uh, we really feel strongly that part of this will be a combination of those point in time assessments coupled with more of the things that can be done remotely and in, and in, in a decentralized way. So it might be, you know, Danny, you, you wearing a watch and passively we're monitoring different activities and different things that you're doing, whether it be within gate, within your gate, within, within a, a gesture, it could be different um, speech activities or, or measuring dexterity or other types of things um, that, that all together and all told uh, really bring together uh, both active tests and survey data and passive monitoring things all in a way that gives a better and more comprehensive view as to whether or not a particular therapeutic that's being that's, that, that's under study by that sponsor organization is actually having its, its intended uh, effect and intended impact. 
So we really see a convergence of all of these data coming together in a way that I think will give a, a, a broader and fuller and richer picture as to uh, the efficacy uh, of, a, of a given product. Definitely, and, and it kind of provides a more, I guess, holistic, a, a more continuous understanding of the patient outside of you know these static Correct. Kind of trials. Correct. Like, well, yeah. yeah. I mean, take for example, right? We have some assessments, and I'll, I'll stick primarily with the example of, of a cognitive assessment, right? It could be an assessment that's done, for example, the mini mental state examination. That might be in the, in the context of a, of a clinical trial protocol administered every three months, every six months, as opposed to something that's maybe measuring the mental state, the mental health of a particular patient on a more frequent and ongoing basis through the use of patient uh, reported or patient uh, completed assessments uh, at home, as well as even measuring uh, things like, for example, we, we're, we're working on studies uh, or partnered with folks that are working on studies that are, that are collecting voice data uh, on a periodic basis to determine whether or not it's detecting any patterns in, in voice changes and things like that which may lead to an indication as to their, their cognitive decline as an example. So it's the, it's, it's the coming together, it's the confounding of all these different things, the point in time assessments coupled with more of the active tests and passive monitoring uh, that I think we're gonna see more and more of. Um, you know, it, it's interesting statistics in, in 2019, there were only about 12 sponsor companies using digital endpoints or digital biomarker data Fast forward just two years later, there were almost 70 sponsor organizations collecting those kinds of data. So it's just been a tremendous increase in that space. There's a lot of interest in there. There was a recent study published uh, from the Movement Disorder Society meeting, which just occurred uh, back in late September. Um, there was a, a large watch Parkinson's disease study um, that was looking for tremors and other kinds of things and, and tapping exercises that patients did and some really interesting data. Again, the, the whole movement is there to be able to show that point in time assessments coupled with other kinds of more active and passive assessments that are being done you know, more routinely uh, combined really provide a better picture as to the efficacy of a particular therapy to help treat or cure uh, particular disease states. How, how do you see the design of clinical trials changing or clinical inks role as we're able to incorporate more of these kind of, I wouldn't say experimental digital endpoints, but things that perhaps, have really been yeah, possible? I mean, per, yeah, perhaps exploratory. I think many of them will start off in an exploratory fashion. I think there's a lot of initiatives underway, whether it be activities that large pharma companies are doing to, to uh, explore and adapt digital endpoints for different therapeutic areas that they're researching into. I think there's work being done again by industry consortiums like DIME, the Digital Medicine Society that has developed their own digital endpoints playbook as well, um, where they're, they're you know, demonstrating and talking about best practices for companies to embrace to collect these kinds of things. And I think you know, it's, it's the confluence of all of these things together that's going to continue to drive that forward. And I think some of it may start off in a more exploratory way, but I think when they're coupled with point-in-time assessments, and then you have some of those other more passive and active assessments that are being done 
um, I think it's the combination of those things in, in total that, that give a better and broader picture that I think companies are going to continue to look at to get, I think, a more holistic view as to the impact and the effect that their, um, that their products are, are having on patients afflicted with a variety of different diseases. What would you like to see moving forward to maintain inclusivity, equity, especially as, you know, as we bring these as we're able to bring trials into people's homes to make sure that we're bringing them into everyone's homes, that it's not just if you have a smartphone, if you're able to use a smartphone, that you're included in this research? No, great, great question. And I think we have to be ready, companies have to be ready to be able to provide potential patients with the tools that they need. And the tools include a device. The tools might include a MiFi device. The tools might include having data plans available for them that the patient doesn't have to worry about if they don't have the wherewithal to be able to have a phone, to be able to have an environment at um, you know different tools and technologies and, and hardware in order to to participate in the study. We can't, you know, never can there ever be a day where a patient is excluded because they don't have you know a tablet or a device or an at-home, um, you know laptop or something in, in order to stay engaged within the study. So we absolutely have to be prepared uh, to provide them with the needed equipment so that, um, you know, as much diversity and as many patients can be included, especially ones that certainly meet all of the, the clinical aspects of inclusion exclusion uh, within, uh, within a given study that, that, that they are included in the research. Um, so, again, sponsors just need to be poised and ready to, to be able to support them with the needed hardware and data plans and other kinds of things in order to, to ensure that they're able to participate. Are there any stories you can go with of people that are doing exciting things after having pivoted to DCT methods during the pandemic or, or currently are just kind of pushing forward utilizing DCT methods that are doing really exciting work? Sure. Um, I, I think the one that comes to mind uh, right away is an organization that's doing groundbreaking work in early onset Alzheimer's disease research. These are patients that uh, fall between generally uh, late 50s, um, late 70s, early 80s um, from an early onset Alzheimer's disease standpoint. And it's a fairly lengthy study, a multi-year long um, study with these patients. Uh, and this particular sponsored company was committed to making sure that it wasn't a burden for these patients to be involved in the research, this critical research to try and find a cure for Alzheimer's disease. And part of that, part of their passion, the sponsor's passion was everything we were just talking about, right? Equipping patients, equipping their caregivers with tools, technologies, with hardware, with data plans, with other things that they needed in order to make sure that the patients were able to participate. They also wanted to make sure that they limited the amount of time that the patient actually had to physically come in to a brick and mortar or a physical location, right? I think over the course of a five or six year long period of time, they literally only had to come in to a uh, actual location, I think about three or four times. And that was it, everything else was able and is able to be done remotely. Again, through the use of telehealth, telemedicine, clinicians were able to administer different assessments and activities. They were able to engage 
with the patients and their caregivers uh, remotely via video uh, linkage. They were able to uh, allow the patient to carry out different tasks and activities in order to demonstrate cognitive abilities, as well as allow the clinician to be able to carry out uh, clinician-administered portions of those assessments. And again, all of those things, all of those things are able to be done um, from the comfort of the patients and the caregiver's own home. So that to me is just, you know, an amazing example of a sponsor's commitment to, you know, of course, carrying out the needed uh, study protocol and the needed research activities, but also keeping in mind and bearing in mind the comfort of the patient um, in order to retain them. Those, I mean, at the end of the day, they are the most precious commodity, the patients. And, you know, this company, I applaud them because they were very focused on doing whatever it took to, to meet with patients where they were and, and their caregivers, because in this case, it did, did, did require caregiver involvement. What I've heard from them is that going forward, they, they really want to embrace this type of approach for a lot of the other study work that they're planning on doing over the coming years, uh, because again, they're committed to really putting the patient first in, in their research activities. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for taking the time to speak with me, for sharing your thoughts and your best practices for DCTs and mobile data capture and what it can do for trials. For more information on our PharmaTalk radio podcast, please visit theconferenceforum.org. Thank you all.